Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case number 03, Inez Phillips. So, sister? Yes. What is our case this week? This week, our case is about a woman by the name of Inez Phillips who was murdered in her room. Okay. I found this case by researching another case that we were actually going to work on. And then, of course, when you're researching, it's really hard to stay focused on the story you're trying to research Mm -hmm. when you find all these extra little good gold nuggets out there. But we were having a little trouble finding enough information on our previous story, so it was really easy to switch to this one. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but it's a gruesome murder with the knife sticking out of her chest. That's what drew bum, me to bum, it. Bum. On July 9th, 1975, a woman by the name of Frankie May Howard goes to her job. She is a maid and she goes to the home of Mrs. Inez Phillips on uh, 428 North Main Street in Gladewater, Texas. And she comes to work about 825 a.m. She usually arrives between 825 and 830 a.m. And her and Miss Phillips had a day planned of doing fruit and vegetable jarring, which is a hobby that Miss Phillips liked to do. And it was normal for her to leave the front door unlocked for Miss Howard to come in so she could come in and get the day started and not have to wait for her. And when she arrived, the door was open, but the kitchen seemed to be a mess. She said that there were peach peelings and peas in baskets on the floor. Miss Howard said that it looked like Miss Phillips had started working on a batch and was getting ready for another and kind of stopped midway. So she figured maybe she was distracted. So she started kind of cleaning up the kitchen a little bit, tidying up before she went back to check on Miss Phillips. And the doorbell rang. It was a guy delivering more vegetables because how great of a time this was where Mm -hmm. stuff was delivered to your door all the time. And then the yard guy came by and said that he was supposed to be there for trimming the bushes and mowing the lawn, but his lawnmower wasn't starting and the blade needed to be replaced. So he said, I'll be back. She's like, well, with all this noise going on, I need to go wake up Miss Phillips because she's not going to be happy with all this noise going on. So she went down to the hall towards her room and she called out to her. She didn't answer. So she figured she was probably asleep. So she went in the bedroom, turned the light on. And when she looked towards the bed, all she could see was a knife sticking up out of the bed. So she froze and she started kind of backing out of the room and she went to the kitchen and called Miss Phillips' son. His name is Jack. He was at work and she told him to call Billy Sorrells, who is an employee of the Phillips, and told him what happened. And he instructed Miss Howard to call Dr. Leak, who was a family physician who lived two blocks away. The doctor arrived. He checked for a pulse. There was nothing. He said she was very healthy. There's no no reason for her to just obviously die in her sleep. Whenever they went into the room, the bed was blood soaked, all the sheets around it. She had a knife sticking out of her chest and there was blood coming from her head. Why would he say she was otherwise healthy if there was a knife sticking from her chest? He was, well, at first, whenever he first went in, of course, he saw the knife. I guess maybe he was thinking that there wasn't any other problems going on with her. So obviously this is something very bad going on. It wasn't like she had nothing going on with her. She's very healthy. So something very bad has happened in this situation. So Mrs. Inez Scarborough Phillips was born on 11-9 of 1899. Wow. Which is really cool. I mean, this is the first person I've ever researched that was born in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born in Ad Hall, Texas, which I'm not sure where Ad Hall is. If you've heard, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it either. She went to San Marcos State Teachers College to become a teacher. When she graduated from San Marcos, she moved to Gladewater to become a teacher. And after working, she went to cash her first check, and she went to the Everett Banking Company, which later became the first state bank, and she cashed her first paycheck, and a Mr. Lois Phillips was the one that cashed her check, and he said that when she walked in, he just thought she was absolutely beautiful. Wait, is cashed her check code for something? Maybe in his mind. Okay. He was really cashing her check, not just giving her money, you know? Right, So she came in. And he was very taken aback by her beauty and her smile. And so they just kind of hit it off from there. They married in 1922, so she would have been 23. 
She loved gardening. She was very well known in the community. I read quite a few articles where she was part of the First Baptist Church of Fidelis. Her and Mr. Phillips taught Sunday school, and they would host events at their house. I read a lot of events where they had hosted at their house. They did stuff at the church all the time, and Mr. Phillips continued to work at the bank. He was on the board of directors, and then he became the chairman of the Gladewater Federal Savings and Loan. And then he started the Lois and Jack Phillips Oil Company shortly after their only son, Jack, was born. And instead of renting a place, the office was actually in their home. Then they owned Gladewater Ice Plant, which when you were looking at the map earlier, I noticed there was an ice house Mm -hmm. just a couple doors down. It was interesting to read that they owned an ice plant because at this time they didn't have just ice to get at the store. So they had an actual plant where they had ice. I guess they made ice and they would block it for you and you could pick it up. Well, of course, whenever home ice makers started being put in refrigerators, then they went out of business. But before then... He owned multiple businesses, so they were doing very well for themselves. And then he became an oil man and was very successful with the Jack Lois and Jack Phillips Oil Company. But Mr. Phillips, unfortunately, passed away four months. I have, he was also the mayor of Gladewater for a while. I didn't read anything about him being the mayor. He was the mayor for two terms, it said, one in 1944 and then one in 1948. So he was also the mayor there. Okay. Pretty influential if he was the mayor and on the board of directors. Uh, He was also in the Chamber of Commerce there. So, yeah, they were pretty well-known in the community. Yeah, and then they they had their son, Jack Phillips, and then the one daughter, LaVon Vern Mm -hmm. Phillips. I'm Um, not sure what year she was born. I have that the son was born in 1925, but my research didn't really start until after 1924, and the daughter was already born then, so. Okay, and then I did read that Jack Phillips was in the military. He was in World War II. Um, I read that once he was honorably discharged from the military, he bought a plane in Mobile, Alabama, and he flew the plane from there to Gladewater, back home. And then he parked it in a cow pasture, <laughs> and he got sighted, and he tried to tell them, you know, I am i don't know where else to land it. There's no nearby airport that I can land it in. And so he got sighted, and he parked it, and he never flew it again. But it was like a big deal. That and this- Gladewater's not very big. Like, I, I, we were talking before about our very first story had personal connections because our family had, had to deal with some of the, the bloody carpet and everything. But this one didn't really have a personal connection. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is going to have one. But when I was researching, I decided I don't really know where Gladewater is. What can I find out about it? It's really small. It's 126 miles east of where we are. So straight east. The current population is 6,000. And that's a direction we never really go. We don't really go. Yeah. We always either go north or west. Mm -hmm. So there is a tiny personal connection, not necessarily to the story, but to Gladewater in that It says that the town is most famous for, uh, it was a base during Elvis Presley's early career. Mm -hmm. And also as the town in which Johnny Cash wrote, I Walk the Line. And of course, our dad was a huge fan of Johnny Cash. He played his music all the time. I remember hearing it over and over when I grew up. So now we play it a lot just to reminisce and all that. So I thought that was cool, this little little Johnny Cash tie-in. To a story that I randomly found while trying to research our other story. Especially since he's passed, you hear Johnny Cash in random places. And it's usually either, it's either Walk the Line or it's... Folsom Prison. Folsom Prison. Or Ring of Fire. Or the three that you usually, random places, restaurants or different places. So definitely very cool that you found that. So a little personal connection. Okay, back on track. So you were talking about Mr. Phillips and you were about to talk about and he passed away. Yeah, so he passed away four months prior to Miss Phillips being killed on July 10th. He passed away in February of 1975 after a 46-day hospital stay after he had a heart attack. Okay, my articles just said that he passed away in a Tyler hospital but it just said after a lengthy illness, it didn't say what. Yeah, so he had a heart attack and then 40, he stayed in the hospital for 46 days. I think they were hoping that he would be able to, because it said that he was on life support. But I think at that time, life support was considered a breathing machine. Not so much that the just the machine was keeping him alive. I think it was more like he was intubated and they were helping oh, yeah. him breathe. And then he unfortunately did not make it. So he passed away four months prior to, to Miss Phillips. Sad. At least she didn't have to live without him very long. True. On July 9th, 
Clearly the maid finds Inez in the bedroom. And so some of the details of how they found her were that she was laying on her bed with her hands tied and her mouth was taped shut and a butcher knife was protruding from her chest. They said that the primary motive was robbery and they found a safe in the living room open. There was no sign of forced entry. And at that time, the stab wound was listed as the preliminary cause of death, but that she also suffered a blow to the left side of her forehead, as well as a hard blow to the back of her head. And then they talked about her funeral services being held on Friday and that she would be buried in the Gladewater Memorial Park. So I have that she was stabbed once in the chest with a large kitchen knife that came from her own kitchen. Oh, I didn't see. They didn't have that in mind. That sucks. And that her body was fully clothed with her mouth taped and wrists bound on her blood-soaked bed. The bedroom was ransacked and drawer contents were spread all over the floor. She had been out of town for over a week and she had just arrived back home the night before. Oh, I didn't know that either. And they found one shotgun shell. A gun had gone off, but it didn't look like she had gunshot wounds and there was no gun found in the home. And they did decide that it was a robbery. Okay. So the investigation continues. They don't really have very many leads or anything. So then a couple days later, Justice of the Peace Ross DeLay revised the ruling and the cause of death for Inez because instead of it being the chest wound, which you would naturally assume and it's sticking out of her chest, it was actually the blow behind her left ear and near the back of her head, that was the cause of death. It said the autopsy showed the blow was made with an instrument about one inch square, such as a pipe or wrench. So here we go again with somebody beating somebody in the head with, with a, a pipe. pipe or wrench. And at that point, they're still searching for a suspect, no arrest. And it says kind of like what you said, that the bedroom was ransacked and the safe was open in another room. Yeah, I have that Dr. Gwen Harwell was the medical examiner. And that Dr. Harwell did the autopsy and found out the skull fracture below to the back of the head by the left ear was what did it. And that the stab was just to ensure that she was dead. Mm. So there was really no need for it. it was by what they could tell, she was already almost dead or dying. And that the knife had no fingerprints on it, so they did come to the conclusion gloves had to have been yeah, used. I, I read that. But too. there were two safes. There was one in her room. Oh, I didn't know that. That was open, that had the combination lock written on a piece of paper and was sitting on top of it. And then there was one in the other room that was open with nothing in it. The home was burglarized previously in June of 1973, where an exorbitant amount of money was taken from one of their safes, which was in the bedroom. So Mr. Phillips decided that they needed to put another safe in the home. So they hired a company to come out and tell them, where can we put a safe and how can we do it so it's not found? And the company helped them install a safe that was actually in the kitchen, in the ground, and they put linoleum on top. So from the outside, unless you knew it was there, there's no way you'd know there was a safe there. And that's where they kept all their stuff. With him being the mayor and owning this giant oil company, mm -hmm. everybody knew he had money. So the risk of him getting burglarized again could have happened. So to prevent that, they had one safe that looked like it was a big deal, but it was empty. But the one in the floor had everything in it. They had a fake safe. Correct. But then a real safe that nobody really and knew about. Because Mr. and Mrs. Phillips didn't flaunt a lot of their stuff. A lot of their stuff was kept in the safes. The family couldn't even say what was stolen because they couldn't account for everything that was in that safe. So whenever the first robbery happened, they never caught those people because it was cash and they couldn't really remember everything they put in their safe. On July 12th, Chief Jay Banks is quoted as saying, we're not making much progress. The police the, the department. <laughs> the depletion department. The police the police department. <laughs> they've been working around the clock. He said they've eliminated a lot of people. They continue to get tips about different things. But so far, all the possible suspects have turned out to be legitimate and the interviews checked out all right. So this at this point, just like you said, they feel like the people wore gloves and they just didn't have much information to go on. So Well, and, and this is a very well-known woman. It wasn't like she just lived a timid life that it would have to be a random act of violence. Obviously, they had motive. They wanted money or jewelry mm -hmm. or whatever was in there. And she lives by herself and has for the last four months. Yeah, so easy target. They also stated that everything that they had, not that there was a lot of it, was being analyzed by the Texas DPS Crime Lab here in Dallas. So I thought that was cool. Oh, that is cool. A few days later, some of her friends offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to an indictment of the person that committed this crime. I read the same thing, and I think I read it in 10 different papers in Texas. Yeah, it was all over, all over the Texas papers. I read an editorial 
that they had written that there has been a crime tidal wave and that violent crimes were up by 20%. In Gladewater? In the United States. Oh. And they were saying that from the years 1972 to 1975 that homicides were up 20%. Wow. In the United States. So they were saying that, you know, crime is on the rise and we don't really know why. And I have heard, like not just in a funny way, but that more bad stuff happens in the summer because a lot of people are off work, more vacations happen. And I don't know if it's the heat. People the get crazy mad. Texas heat makes you go crazy. But it seemed, I mean, Miss White was killed in the summer. Oh, that's true. Miss Gore was killed in the summer. And now we have this woman was killed in the summer. Like, I don't know what it is about Texas and heat, but we must... We must get real mad, real easy. And everybody has a damn pipe. <laughs> the damn street. They probably find them. Early August, there's a couple of small articles, not anything too big, but mainly just saying there were a second round of polygraph tests given to a, quote, number of people. And that was Jay Banks that said that, but no suspects were arrested. Mid-August, there's information that that reward was extended through September 15th. Mm -hmm. I guess it was supposed to end sometime in August, but they extended that reward. The end of August, there's article talking about more Texas Rangers are going to join the Gladewater Police Department to help figure out what was going on. So they have had lots of leads, but so far the leads didn't take them anywhere. They talk again about the polygraph test, but again, none of those led to an arrest. One of the Texas Rangers, they dedicated full-time in investigator and then the other two would be assisting part-time but he said they're getting fewer calls about it and then just less and less to go on but they're still following every lead that they get but it's trickling down well in the picture of the house when you look at it it's not very close to the neighbor and then on the other side of the house is i guess the ice house that they yeah, own there's a, a, some so, land and then that. i mean there's not really a lot of people in that area, so there most likely wouldn't have been very many eyewitnesses. Doesn't seem like it. Well, actually, no. Well, not eyewitnesses, but the fact that they've questioned so many people and they have so much information coming in means there was enough suspicious stuff going on that people had information to bring. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to tie any of those people to this. Mm -hmm. So there were suspicious things going on and people coming and going, but it never led to anything. So there was a lot of, I mean, 20 people were given polygraph tests. That's quite a few people. That is a lot. Banks is quoted as saying, probably more than one person was involved in the slaying. So now, for the first time, they're saying they think there was more than one person that was involved in this robbery murder situation. Then we don't hear anything for two full years. Yeah. There's so I don't find just... anything from August 1975. And then the first information I can find after that is May of 1977. Is that what... I have uh, April 28th of 1977. Okay. So basically all I saw in the newspaper for the next two years, I think you said too, was just that the reward was still going on. Mm -hmm. They still had the money. They were still trying. The friends and family were still trying to get the word out that they would give this reward if somebody would either turn themselves in, in the sense that if you give us information, like you said, or you get this person indicted, we'll give you the money. Right. Crickets. Nothing happened. But on uh, April 28th, 1977, the headline reads, third person indicted on murder. I was like, what happened to the first and second person? So I went back and tried to research once I saw the people's names, and it wasn't in the newspaper. So I don't know if they were keeping it hush until they got this third person, if they oh, knew three maybe. people were in, were in on it. They didn't want them to tip each other off. So maybe. James Millard Moulton Jr., 43, was arrested on April 25th on a $50,000 bond. Joseph Stanley Folder, 39, was arrested April 17th, and Stormy McCann, also known as Stormy Summers, and also known as Linda Ziegler McCann, was arrested April 24th. But Joseph Folder and Stormy were both denied bond. So, I don't know what they did more so than Mr. Moulton, but... He was able to get out on a $50,000 bond, but the other two were denied bond. And right. that's all it said. It didn't say who did what or anything. Right. It didn't list out what they were being indicted for. Correct. Just that they were in connection with the murder of Inez Phillips. Okay. Falder also had an alias, which was Stan Cotter. Really? I didn't read that. Mr. Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Stanley Falder was indicted for capital murder of Inez and theft of property in a different case. There was a second indictment for him, which was theft of $336 from a self-serve gas station in Longview. And he was also known as Stan Cotter. And when he was 
Using that alias, he worked at that gas station. What could he possibly have stolen $336 worth at a gas station in the 70s? That's a lot of hobos. But most people paid cash. Think about it. Oh, so he didn't steal items. He stole cash. He from stole there. cash. Oh, I was like, yeah. that's a lot of ho hos. $336. That's a lot of ho hos. And then our friend Stormy was indicted for capital murder and burglary of habitation. Which I guess now we know why they were denied bond. Right. And so now we know that those two were involved in the murder and Moulton was just. His indictments were for conspiracy to commit burglary and burglary of habitat. <laughs> she can't say habitat. Habitation. <laughs> I jacked it up that time on purpose. Habitat's her bad word. It's not habitation. No. Habituation. That's what I'm trying to say. Habituation. I hate it when I habituate. <laughs> Can you not habituate? Habituation makes me laugh because I always go, Habituation. I'm going to omit that. Fucking word. God. Okay. So ultimately, the two of them, Falder and. (laughs) Abort, abort, abort. Oh my God. Habituation. Oh God. So Falder and McCann remained in Gregg County Jail without bond. So because those two were indicted on capital murder charges, they weren't able to post bond. But our friend Moulton Jr., because he wasn't being indicted for the murder, just the robbery, he was able to post bond and got out. Then a couple days later, the suspects plead not guilty during their arraignment. So all three of them are like, no, no, we didn't do it. I know you say we did it. Oh wait, actually two of the three plead not guilty. Moulton Jr. and Stormy. Falder, his lawyer was out of town and couldn't be there. Okay. So he wasn't able to enter a plea. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So he's got to stay in there a little bit longer. Mid-May, I have that Falder will be the first one to go before the judge to face the capital murder charges. And so I was wondering how, I know you covered it a little bit, how they actually got him. How did this come about? Like, At this point, we don't really know how they tied these people to this crime. Mr. Moulton Jr. went to the police about this. Okay. And I think he kind of ratted them out, maybe hoping to get the 50 grand and maybe he got it. I don't know. Oh, okay. And I think that's why. But if you're involved in some capacity, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. I mean, we don't know I mean, somebody tipped them off because they quietly went and arrested all three of them. Okay. So I couldn't find who went to them. Yeah. But it, because it's so random and there was nothing in the paper about it until they were all three indicted. It seems like to me that someone tipped them off. And gave them the story, and they just had to go find the people. Go find out where they were and bring them back. Mm -hmm. I have that the trial date is set for August 29th. Well, actually, it's a different date for each one of them. Right. Right. I have, it was July 25th for Moulton Jr., Mm -hmm. uh, August 29th for Falder, and for our friend Stormy, it was the same day as Falder, August 29th. So I guess because they were both indicted for... Capital murder, their date would be together, and then Moulton Jr. would be on his own. Makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. July 24th, I have that there was an order for continuance for Moulton because his trial was set for July 25th, but that day before that Sunday, his attorney requested a continuance because Moulton Jr. had said, this is what happened, this is my story, but it just wasn't really enough information. There was no way to prove what he was saying. It was just hearsay. So his attorney was concerned that if he got in front of this jury, that they may tie him to the murder too, because he was somewhat part of the whole event, not the murder, but the other parts of the event. So the trial starts and Folder was pleading guilty to murder. He was admitting that he took part in the murder and the jury consisted of eight women and four men. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it didn't start on the 24th was because one of the women jurors got sick. So they had to replace her. So it took a couple of days. So they go over in opening statements. They kind of go over what happened. So Falder gave statement to the officers when he was questioned in April of 1977 when he was first arrested. He had to sign a statement stating that he was with these three different, there was a Texas Ranger, there was a district attorney, and then there was the chief of police. And he had to sign in front of these three that he was not coerced and he was not forced to say anything that wasn't true because this was almost a two-year murder, mm-hmm. right? So they want everyone to know, like, we're not 
forcing him. We're not trying to just close the case. He's doing this on his own recognizance, right? So his statement, which some of this is in quotes. Okay. They read his statement in opening statements because his attorney asks him, do you want to take the stand? He says, no. What I've said happened, I've already said, I don't want anybody to mix up my words. So you read my statement and that's like I'm on the stand. So he reads his statement, which says, sometime in June of 1975, Folder was at a bar on Highway 149 before you get to Sabine River Bridge. And his friend Doyle Hughes Mm -hmm. and him went into this bar at around 10 p.m. They shot pool, they drank bourbon and Coke, and they sat down with Doyle Hughes Falder, James Moulton, and Stormy Summers are all at this bar. They're mm-hmm. sitting around, you know, talking and not talking about anything specific. And Moulton brought up the fact that he was currently working on a house in Gladewater. And he said, you know, we should maybe go after that place. It's an easy score, quote unquote. That's what he, that's how he puts it. He offered to take them up to Gladewater and show them this house. And the four of them go and get in Moulton's car, drives up to Gladewater. Folder stated, I remember the trunk lid was missing. And he said it was very odd to him that it was missing because he felt like everyone keeps important stuff in the trunk. Why would that be missing? So he just thought that was very, that was weird that his trunk lid was missing. That is odd. Like if I rode with someone that didn't have the, if their trunk was missing, I'm pretty sure I'd remember that too. Yeah. So he had pretty big detail. And he said they drove to Gladewater and they drove to Mrs. Phillips' house. He pointed the home out to the other three. And then they drove back to the bar. They had a few more drinks. And then Folder says that they went home. It had been raining pretty much all night long. So they went home. A few days later, Folder met up with Stormy at the bar. And it was Stormy's idea to tell Folder, you know, maybe we should go back to the home. Because Mr. Moulton, he hasn't said anything if he's going to do it. Hughes hasn't said if he's going to do it. But if somebody's going to do it, we need to do it soon. And they were dating. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. See, I didn't know that. None of that was, it wasn't in any of my He referred to her as his girlfriend. So their boyfriend and girlfriend, obviously they trust each other. Mm-hmm. So what better duo to go rob a house than a boyfriend and girlfriend? They have each other's back. They talked about different ways they could break into the home based on what they saw. Folder says that on July the 8th, just after dark, Folder and Stormy went to Gladewater to the Phillips home. He said they drove a Chevy Vega that belonged that. to a used car salesman. Mm-hmm. And they parked the car And the Phillips Oil parking lot. So they parked between a big tree and the garage of the Phillips home so that the car would not be seen from the road. They went through the gated fence near the garage. Folder had a 38 caliber pistol, a homemade blackjack, which was made out of a piece of flat iron and a roll of white tape. So Stormy came up with the idea that since she's a woman, if I go up to the door and I pretend that something's wrong, she's more willing to open the door for me. So she goes to Miss Phillips' door in the back, right? She's coming through the, mm-hmm. the fence. She tells Miss Phillips that her car's broke down and she needs help. And it's raining. And so... It's a stormy night for Stormy. It is. It is. <laughs> a stormy summer night, I might add. What? You can't make this shit up, man. You really can't. So she claims her car's been broke down. So Miss Phillips, of course, lets her in. And as soon as she gets in the house, she grabs Miss Phillips from around the neck, turns her around and puts the gun to her head. She forces Miss Phillips to sit down. She puts the gun to her head. She lets Falder in. She basically fights with Miss Phillips a few times. Phillips tries to get away a few times. And so she's holding her down and the gun goes off. Oh, And it misfires. And that is the shell that they find in the home that didn't go anywhere. And so that makes Stormy mad because now there's noise. Mm -hmm. And it makes Falder upset because he's like, we just need to get this shit done and get out. We don't want to cause a scene. This is the mayor's house. This is a big deal. These are millionaires. We need to get it. Get out. Boulder gets the combination and she tells him that it's in the back of the house. Now, he knew that Moulton said that he had installed this safe, but he didn't tell them exactly where it was. So he goes to the back of the house and he opens up the safe, which is in her room, and it's empty. He is outraged. He is so mad. They tape her Mm -hmm. hands together and they put duct tape on her mouth. So whenever... Falder realizes that he can't get in the safe. He demands the other safe. He wants to know where the other safe is and the combination, which, of course, she gives him. And so he's messing with that. While he's doing that, Stormy makes Miss Phillips go back into the bedroom. Basically, their plan is to get the stuff and get out. Folder says that while Stormy is looking in the safe, he goes to check on Miss Phillips because there's a lot of noise going on in the room. He says, and I quote, Miss Phillips was struggling, but stopped when I came in the room. I attempted to get her to lie down on the bed and stop struggling enough for me to finish tying her up because they weren't able to finish in the kitchen. 
She continued to fight so hard I hit her in the back of the head with the homemade blackjack. I put her on the bed and I tied her hands with tape. We also put tape across her mouth and we proceeded to go through the rest of the house. He said, I went back to check on Miss Phillips, who was moaning, groaning, and kicking, and he felt the back of her head, and it was crushed. Mm. He said, so I went to the kitchen, and I got a knife. I went back to the bedroom, and I stabbed her in the center of the chest. So he felt like he was, I guess, putting her out of her misery. Oh, okay. Because she was moaning and groaning, and he broke her skull. They get a bag that they found of hers in the closet, and they put jewelry and money and whatever they find in the home, the blackjack, the tape, and the two pairs of brown gloves that they find, they put it in this bag. And as they're driving back home, they start realizing what they've done. Like, they didn't just rob this place. Mm -hmm. They killed this woman who's a millionaire and whose husband was the mayor. So they get nervous. They turn around and go back to Sabine River, and they throw the bag, everything they just stole, over into the water. They, They called it a flight bag. But it was like a carry-on that she would take when she went out of town. And they throw it in the river because they feel like... They don't want to be caught with any of her belongings because then then immediately that, that ties them to the crime scene. Then after thinking about what they did, they go back and move it further down the river because they're afraid that that's too close to the street. And it's coming closer. So they go back, they walk further down, and they throw it. So they went back to Stormy's house and he left the next day, and then he sold the thirty-eight pistol to a stranger. He just sold it. He got rid of it. He didn't want any part of it. They had 17 witnesses wow. that they were able to call up. Some were character witnesses. Some were witnesses that saw these certain people working there, saw them in and out of the mm-hmm. house, saw them at the bar. Then, of course, he didn't testify because his attorney told him, it's best that you don't. Let me read your statement. And that's why... His statement was read in opening statement so that the jury would understand what Falder's responsibility was in that. So I guess that's why McCann wasn't charged after they read this. Because if he hit her in the head and he stabbed her, but wouldn't she be considered an accessory to murder? Because she didn't stop it. I would think so. She didn't stop it. And how do we know, you know, I mean, we got confused about reading the story whether or not Stormy hit her in the head with the gun. We know that she was hit in the back of the head with the pipe. She was an accessory because she, even if she didn't physically do anything to harm her, she wasn't helping. And she, she's the one that coerced her to open the door on lies just to get in there to steal from her. And she had a gun. And she fired it. Granted, mm-hmm. it was a misfire. But, I mean, if she had the intent to get in there any way necessary and get steal whatever she could, she was capable of it. Or she at least had a premeditation if that's what had to happen. Or why would you have a gun? At least a loaded gun. If you just take a gun just to scare them, why would it need to be loaded if you don't plan on using it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the next witness that took the stand was a Mr. Herbert Williams, who is a Longview carpenter and building contractor. And one of his specialties was installing safes. He testified that the safe that was in Mr. and Mrs. Phillips' home that was in the floor of the kitchen was purchased from Top Printing Company, which specialized in floor safes. He remembered that safe specifically because Mr. Phillips wanted it flush with the floor and wanted linoleum on top of it. So unless you knew it was there, there's no way that you would know there was a safe in that floor. He testified that their company was the one that put that safe in, and it was a specific floor safe. So do you have to cut the linoleum to get to it? I don't know. Or did know. it have, like, have a zipper? <laughs> That'd be kind of obvious. The next witness was Douglas Ashmore. He was the owner of House of Carpets. And he testified that James Moulton Jr. was an employee of his. During that time, the safe was installed. And he laid the linoleum on top of that safe. So he knew exactly where the safe was and how it worked because he put the flooring on top of it. The next person to testify was Doyle Hughes. He was one of the people at the bar the night that they got together and found about this prospective robbery place. So he took the stand and, of course, he told them that he did know who Folder was. But that night at the bar was the first time he met him. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he, he didn't know him. Folder had stayed at Hughes' home with his mom for a couple of weeks that year. But seeing him at the bar was the first time he had seen him since then. Hughes knew Moulton and Summers from meeting them at a hurricane club in previous years. So he knew of them and knew who they were. And on that night in question, the night that they all talked about burglarizing the home, Hughes stated that he and Folder went to Jerry's Lounge before going to the hurricane club that evening. 
And Hughes said at the club he played pool, he drank some beer, and that Moulton and Summers were there. And Moulton mentioned that he had worked in Gladewater at a house with a safe in it. He wanted to go over there and he wanted to break into the safe. So the four of them went over there. So he pretty much recounted what Folder said and he confirmed that it was correct. His statement did not change. It just confirmed what he was, was telling said. the truth. Yes. Yeah. The next person to testify was Frankie May Howard, who was the maid, which I did describe her testimony earlier in the, mm -hmm. in the episode, setting the scene of the murder. And then a chief photographer of Gladewater Mirror, which was the newspaper, his name is Jimmy Brown. He was asked to identify a series of pictures he took at the residence after the murder. So kind of like in previous cases where they asked the neighbors to come and clean up the home, in this situation, they asked a reporter to come and take pictures of the home, which now, you know, we have CSI and mm -hmm. all these forensics. And now they just ask, hey, you're good at taking pictures. Come take some pictures for us. So he goes in and he takes pictures of the bullet that had been fired. And so evidently it had gone through the back door, through the bedroom, and through a window. Oh, wow. And fell on a bedspread. So that's why initially when they went in, of course they could tell that she had been stabbed. But when they found the bullet casing that was on her bed, it just did not make sense. Like, where did this bullet come from mm -hmm. when she has no gunshot wounds that they could tell? So he goes through all the pictures that he took. Next was Texas Ranger Glenn Elliott. He took the stand and he described the crime scene and that there was, you know, no fingerprints, that the only door that was open was the sliding one at the rear of the house, which is the one that Stormy came to stating that she needed help. And he described the body as he found it, that there was clothing all over the bedroom, and that the floor safe in the north side of the house in the kitchen was unlocked and open and it was empty. So again, we have two safes that are open and empty, one in the back that has the combination lock on it and the one in the front. The next person to take the stand was Dr. Harwell, who was the ME that did the autopsy on Miss Phillips. He stated that she had multiple bruises all over her body. She had a bruise at the base of her right thumb and fingers on her right hand, which appeared to have been twisted. So I guess oh, wow. they were maybe grabbed her arm. You know how people will grab the arm and like turn it around mm -hmm. behind their back. She had a bruise on her left leg over her thigh and a bruise on her ankles. She had lacerations and cuts over her left eye and a primary one inch cut behind the left ear surrounded by a three inch area of swelling and blue discoloration which would indicate why she was bleeding so much. And they gave him a plastic foam head. Oh, no. So that he could draw on there exactly where her wounds were to show the jury. And he stated that the knife in her chest had penetrated 6.25 inches. Wow. You think about how hard it is to do that. Like, because you got to go through someone's sternum. It severed her aorta. Well, and you think about it, too. She was laying on the bed. It's not even like she was on a hard surface that would make it easier to go all the way through. She was on a soft bed. So that pretty much instantly killed her, even though her head wound was the cause of death. She was dying, which I guess that's why she was moaning and groaning, right? She's in pain and she's tied up. Poor lady. She's got her hands tied up. She's got duct tape on her mouth. Now she's been stabbed in the chest. But Dr. Harwell did say that with the blow to the head, she would have died hours after that. So He sped it up. He did. This happened, I guess, sometime after midnight or so since it happened on the 9th. Mm -hmm. And that's whenever the maid found her that morning. And if he hadn't stabbed her, maybe she'd have been alive when the maid got there. Maybe. If she hadn't bled out. The next witness to take the stand was James Moulton Jr. He did confirm that he worked for the House of Carpet and that he did work inside the home. He kept saying that he had very bad memory and he didn't remember the dates or he couldn't remember when he had been there, but he had been there at some point and he installed a safe and yeah, he put some linoleum down, but he was very vague about his answers. He recounted the same statement that Folder gave of what happened the night that they talked about burglarizing mm -hmm. the home. He stated that they were going to cut whatever they found into four equal parts, so they would each get 25%. But he said no one approached him after that, so he never thought about going to burglarize it because he wasn't going to do it alone. He knew he needed help to get the job done, but nobody offered afterwards or talked about it, so he didn't think it would happen. And he's the one that's like, hey, let's go. Let me go show you this. Let me go show you this really cool thing I know about. So he's just the ideas guy. He doesn't execute a plan. Right. He stated that after he saw the reward in the paper, he called and identified himself as J42. The police had record of getting an account from this J42 person, but he didn't say I know Wait, about the is safe. is he 42 years old? Maybe. And then his first name starts with a J, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when he was arrested, he was 43. So yeah, that makes sense. Good call. <laughs> 
So he called himself J42, and he was that very... That way he could remember what he called himself, because if you do something too random, you'd be like, I don't remember. But wait, he didn't have a good memory. How does he remember that? Right, and, and again... Because it's J42. What he gives them when he calls is very vague. The police report basically said that they should contact Doyle Hughes, Falder, and Stormy because they have something to do with it. So, of course, they're like, well, if you know that, you need to come down to the office and talk to us, which you yep. didn't want to do. And so he kind of planted the seeds a little bit, but he was more concerned about the 50 grand. Right. So I don't think that they really took that as very serious, but they obviously looked into it because they were able to find the other three. So then he decided he was going to go find Falder because when he read the paper, he knew it had to be them. I mean, it was a perfect robbery, but he couldn't find him. So he just gave up. The last person to take the stand was Jack Phillips, which was Mr. and Mrs. Phillips' son. And he basically was a character witness. He just went up and talked about his mom. He testified that the three necklaces that were found in the river in the bag were his mom's. There were a few things like a few gifts from him and his sister that they had given her as well as a fur that was still missing and nobody knows where that is. So did they keep a few pieces? So they didn't throw everything in the river. By what they're saying, they did, but... The son is saying, you know, we gave our mom a few things and there was this really expensive fur that is missing. So it went somewhere. The next day, Folder is evaluated by two psychiatrists from Beverly Hills Psych Hospital. Uh Uh-oh, 90210? The judge feels like pulling the psychiatrist from Beverly Hills is the best place to pull them from because that's where they thought all the crazy people were. That's crazy. Both psychiatrists determined him to have antisocial and sociopathic tendencies, and he had reached the ultimate level of sociopathic behavior in taking the life of another human and that he would kill again. Dr. James Gigson, giggity giggity, he saw Falder and he stated a sociopathic personality disorder at the extreme tip of the scale. Mm. He had no remorse or regret. A danger to society he will continue as in the past. He can't get any worse except in terms of numbers. Dr. Gigson asked if he was biased. He stated, I'm extremely biased against someone who would take another human life. Uh-oh. Here's I, our salty I, I winner. I see it. Yep. He was a salty psychiatrist because he obviously was a doctor and he had to have some sympathy for these people that were mentally disturbed. I mean, they have a mental disorder. They're not doing it on purpose. They have a mental problem. This is not something that they choose to be. This is who they are. So Solomon, who was the defense attorney, asked, Did you refer to him in a conversation just five minutes ago that he was a louse? And Dr. Gigson responds with, I think he's worse than that. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it. So I believe he is our salty doctor. He gets our salty award for this episode. He was very... And he's from where? Texas. I mean, I'm sorry. No, he's from Beverly Hills. Yep, he's from Beverly Hills. So Dr. John Holbrook was a second psychiatrist. He said, you know, he's sane and competent. His statements are accurate. And he said that he has a basic criminal personality and offered prognosis he would continue in er in an early established antisocial behavior and it would increase in frequency. So he said the same thing. There is something wrong with him. If we allow him to be out in the free world, He he will kill again. So we... For his and everybody else's safety, he needs to be behind bars. He looks rough. I mean, we'll put a picture up with the episode, but he reminds me of, like, the gangsters that you see in, like, the 1940s and the 1950s, like, the old gangster movies that you see, the black and whites. This That's that's where it looks like he belongs. I mean, it's sad to say, but he only had one witness on his side. Everybody was on the prosecution. Wow. The only witness he had was a sign painter who conducts a prison ministry on Sundays in the prison. And he only met him after he had been in jail. So it's not like this person knew him prior to the crime or even during the time of the crime. So that's the only defense he has is this sign painter. He has, he is no prison who conducts a prison ministry is only defense. So the jury deliberates for an hour and a half and they come out and they sentence him to death by lethal injection. He's guilty. Mm -hmm. And he goes to serve his his sentence. And he was executed on July 17th of 1999 by lethal injection. They asked him, do you have any statements or last words? And at first he said, I have no comment. But then right before the end, he stated, I'm at peace with my maker and I'm ready to go. And he had appealed 17 times Mm -hmm. and 38 judges had seen the case. And they all agreed. I was trying to figure out, like, if he said he did it and 
it's obvious that he did it. He said he did it. He didn't deny it. Yeah. There's evidence. The evidence backs up his story. Why are they, what are they appealing? Well, apparently after he was convicted, his IQ is 133. Wow. And so they said that um, when he was three years of age, he fell out of a moving car and he had his head split open on both sides of his head. And that due to this severe brain damage when he was younger, it actually did opposite of what most brain damage does. Instead of making him slow, it made him smarter. And that he was so incredibly intelligent that he had these mental problems. So obviously he didn't do this because he deserves to be punished. He has a mental disorder. Which is both psychiatrists said he had an antisocial, mm -hmm. like he has these traits, but it wasn't enough to consider him incompetent and he needed to be in a mental asylum. Right. He knew what was going on. He knew that what he did was wrong. He didn't have the normal feelings that you and I would have. But one of the constant things with these stories that I've been reading, and there are a lot of head injuries, but it usually causes you to just, you go crazy. You the, can't help it. The family kept appealing because they felt like he had ineffective assistance of counsel because the defendant has sustained severe brain damage near his fourth birthday when his head was split open on both sides after falling out of a moving vehicle and that an expert testimony that the defendant suffered from organic brain disorder which impaired his judgment and impulse control and disqualifies a diagnosis of sociopath and the defendant suffered from depression and alcoholism. So because he had that, this is why he killed. I mean, people that are depressed and that drink shouldn't be allowed to get away with murder. So I don't know why, how that is at how all plausible. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then, fun fact, he was fun Canadian. Fact. Yes, I read a lot. He was Canadian national. So they got prison records from Canada and United States that show the defendant was a peace, peaceful prisoner. He never got in trouble. He did what he was told. And I mean... A lot of people that have high IQs, a lot of times they keep to themselves. They're very introverted. Just because he followed the rules and kept to himself doesn't... He went into a woman's home and killed her. Testimony from his family and friends said the defendant was a loyal friend, a trusted employee. He had two daughters, and he had once saved the life of a victim that was in an accident, and he drove her to the hospital in a blizzard. Hmm. So because he did something right once, and he has two daughters, doesn't make him a saint. He still did what he did. If someone has a mental problem and they did something because of a mental problem that they can't help and they need to be treated in an asylum, that's where they need to be. And I want that help for them. Mm -hmm. But if they're able to understand right from wrong, then they should be punished. But he chose to go there. He chose to take a weapon with him, a homemade blackjack that he made, go into the home knowing he was going to have to hurt her in some way. Or hoping that he wouldn't, but if he had to, clearly was ready to do that. And then after he hits her and realizes that she's suffering, I mean, maybe he does have some compassion and he stabs her in the chest. Or does he do it so she doesn't tell on him? Or does he do it so he can get out of there? I mean, why he does it, we don't know. I just don't think that those reasons mean that he shouldn't be in jail till he dies, you yeah. know, or by a lethal injection. Well, in Canada doesn't have death penalty, right? Because I remember, I think I read that they were trying to extradite him back to Canada, but they were like, no, he committed the crimes here. He's staying here. We're going to do everything here. But his family wanted him to go back there because they don't have the death penalty there. So when well, they, um, the family, when one of the appeals stated that the evidence was a double edged sword because Despite his head injury as a child, he did not, he never exhibited confusion, uncertainty, or mental impairment during the murder. So he wasn't acting odd during that time. They also said that he abandoned his children and their mom when he left Canada. So when he left Canada, he just up and left his family and came to, of all places, he ended up in Texas. And he had no contact with his family for 20 years prior to the trial mm. and at the trial. But the evidence also indicated that Folder is very intelligent he came from a loving, supportive family, which would make him more sympathetic to a situation. And that the Canadian prison records contain information that despite his mental abilities, he was unable to keep his behavior under control. Though he was a model prisoner, he would have outbursts, but he would keep them to himself. He didn't affect the other inmates. They weren't towards he, anyone. Correct. He was, he was able to contain it where he didn't act out to others. Of course... Appeal after appeal, the judges were not persuaded at all that the sentence should be different. So despite the family's concerns and the appeals, nothing nothing changed. And then his niece 
had up until the day before his execution was trying so hard Mm. to get him from because she just felt like he needed to be instead of being killed that he should be in a mental asylum and be treated with medication and then he would be better but if two psychiatrists are telling you that if he is free again he's going to kill then he either needs to be in a mental institution for the rest of his life medicated to where he's safe from hurting other people or he needs to be where he's at but ultimately being out free is not an option whether he is or isn't sick and then i i did find that linda mccann did have a case she had a a court-appointed attorney but i don't know what the outcome was yeah, I saw that she had a court-appointed attorney as well, but it didn't talk about any court dates or whatever because she was indicted on capital murder but never tried for it. So mm-hmm. I don't know what happened between her indictment and his trial. What are your thoughts on this case? Um, I believe that he got what he deserved. I mean, he, he took the life of an innocent woman that did nothing to him and then took her valuables and then just threw them in the river. I mean, if you're going to go in and kill somebody, at least keep the shit that you stole of theirs. I mean, what's the point? Everything that he took out of her safe cost her her life, but then you just threw that in the river. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. That that doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. you know? So then all of the stuff that he killed her for isn't even worth doing something with, right? So she died. He took a life. He died. We took his life. Now, some people are against that. Eye for an eye, man. I hate that he had the head injury. I hate, I feel bad for his family, but he's the one that made the choice. He's the one that did what he did. He hit her in the head. He stabbed her with the knife. Whether or not Stormy was an accomplice, I don't know, but um, I don't feel bad for him. I don't, I don't feel bad for him. And I, I do have faith in our justice system in the sense that I know a lot of, like with all the other documentaries that are out there that we've watched and listened to about some shady situations with cops mm-hmm. and detectives and stuff. This isn't a situation like that. This is no. a situation where Seems he like said... like they did. The cops yeah. did everything right. Yeah, well, and he... And the they evidence, had little... They had no evidence, hardly. And it took them two years, and it wasn't until a person that was actually involved, which three other people accounted that that's what happened. Obviously, like we've said before, something has to be wrong, either for a short duration for that moment, like if you snap, something has to be wrong for you to take another person's life, unless you're doing it in self-defense. Something has to be wrong in your mind to to take someone else's life, Mm -hmm. but especially a premeditation of, I'm going to go to this woman's house who's elderly. She's 75 Mm -hmm. and you're 40. So, Well, she put up enough fight that they had to to bound her wrist and put duct tape on her mouth. So, But I'm saying like you, it's, she's not a spring chicken. She's not 25 or 30 and you know, you're going in there and you're going to steal everything that she has. Why does she have to die? I mean, you just took everything. She's lost mm-hmm. her husband, and now you just took everything from her her safe, which who knows what was in there. I think he got what he deserved in the sense that he went out and took someone else's life for unjust reason and for nothing to throw it in the river. Rest in peace. Case number 03, Inez Phillips, closed. 